When you pray and God does nothing. That's the title of Dr. Mike's message from Compass in Salinas and from our newest location in Marina. Thanks for listening today. Dr. Mike is dealing with a really big issue, and that's why our prayers are sometimes not answered. The fact is, a lot of people get upset with God when they pray and they don't get the answer that they want, or nothing seems to happen. That's why this message is so important. Don't think that because nothing is happening, that God is doing nothing. Here's Dr. Mike to explain and encourage you. Remember, prayer moves the hands of God. Here's Dr. Mike. Walking stiff today because Susie had me in the yard doing honeydew things yesterday all day long. And it's Father's Day weekend. Would you talk to her? I hope you will. Well, surely there are some of us here this morning who are convinced that God has underperformed. We have prayed and prayed for God to do something, and what we prayed for did not happen. And we think God has let us down. From the day our children were born, Susie and I prayed for their protection because no parent wants to see bad things happen to their children. And then one day we realized that John was mentally ill. He was paranoid schizophrenic. And we realized that our prayers for his protection had not protected him. So then we prayed night and day for nine years as he descended into this darkness of mental illness deeper and deeper that he would not do something that would get him killed. He was six foot five, 230 pounds of muscle. And we had seen him as he descended into this illness, become very agitated at just little things, like even a Christmas gift that he was afraid would break. And he went into a tizzy and got very, very agitated. And what we were specifically afraid of is that what happens so often with people who are paranoid is they get stopped for a routine traffic ticket and they get into a tussle with the officer because he does something that makes them feel paranoid. I mean, afraid because they are paranoid. And that fight would end in a gunshot. We prayed for his healing and for his safety and And then one night the phone rang and it was the detective saying that he had hung himself. We prayed for two miracles. Neither happened. Why not? Legions of people become angry and turn against God when they don't get what they pray for. Because grief has a way of tempting us to be angry at the one we think could have done it, but he didn't. And also to give up on prayer. It just doesn't work. So we give up. We did not get what we prayed for. So should Susie and I conclude that prayer doesn't matter, it doesn't work, and give up on it? Legions of people do. The Apostle Paul was one of God's very best, but his prayers... As spirit-filled as he was, did not get sometimes what he asked for. 
So in our scripture reading this morning in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul describes something that is incredibly painful. It's beyond belief how bad it is. He calls it a stake in his stomach. And the word there is scalopos. And it means a long, sharp stake. And Paul says it's like it had been pounded into his gut. And he says that every day he begs, that's the word he uses, he implores God to take this stake away. He doesn't say what it is. There's endless speculation about, by scholars, about what it might have been. Malaria, because he was in malaria country, and poor eyesight because of some things that he wrote in his letters. Migraine, headaches, epilepsy, an estranged wife that left him because he left Judaism and became a Christian. People who hated him and tried to destroy his ministry. And we know that was happening because even in Corinth, because of this letter, there's endless speculation. But it's not important what it is. Or else Paul would have told us. Paul means this anything that is really awful that our prayers don't solve. What is important is that it was unimaginable pain and grief for him. And despite the fact that he prayed over and over again, and if anyone was faith-filled, Paul was, God did not solve this problem in his life. Ever felt that your prayers did no good? Ever prayed for something you desperately needed God to do and he didn't? I've been in your shoes, especially with my son, John. And I found such deep help as I dug into how Paul handled his unanswered prayer here. I found great help and I hope as I explain what Paul did, it helps you today. Let me explain. First, Paul knew that prayer is not a form of control of God or of other people or of nature in this universe. Our prayers do not control God or other people. I think the biggest myth today that is being sold is that we can be in control of what happens to us in this world. And you go to any bookstore and there are endless shelves of self-help books that show you how to control your kids, control your health, that no disease will hit you. And even books by preachers that tell you how to control God. They prescribe ways to pray prayers that God must say yes to. And it's all very appealing. They sell in the millions because deep down we all want to control God, don't we? We think we know best. So we want our control, our prayers to actually even control Almighty God. It's hard to admit, but it's true. And that's one reason people get so angry at God when their prayers uh, don't make God do what they want. 
It's just like us getting mad at our wife or husband because they don't do what we want. We want what we want. And if you don't do it, we're angry. And the way some preachers sell prayer, that makes us angry at God because he didn't do what we wanted. So if you listen carefully, prayer is being sold by some preachers as a way to control God. We're told God has to keep his promises, so they quote Bible verses that will paint God in a corner so that he must do what we pray for. Or we control God through compliments, like you're almighty and nothing is impossible for you, so do this. Some even try to motivate God with guilt. God, if you are good, you will do what I ask in prayer and protect me from bad things or else you're not good. It's unpopular to say this, but there is a lot of teaching out there about how to control even God. And it's very appealing. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of verses like in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. And you're thinking, Pastor Mike, you've preached on those verses and told us to claim them in our prayers, and I have. But I have never preached that claiming those verses will put you in control of God. That's not what Jesus means there. In my research this last week for this message, I came across an article about interviews that were done of Londoners right after World War II. And you remember that initially in the war, the Nazis bombed London relentlessly and leveled much of it. And this interview was questioning Londoners about what the bombing did to them. And uh, one pious Christian told the interviewer, and I quote, God was good to us. We prayed and prayed that no bombs would fall on our homes, so all the bombs fell on the other side of the city on other homes. (laughs) Something's not right with that. (laughs) Did their prayers move the bombers to the other side of the city so that other people's homes were bombed instead of theirs? Is that what protection meant for them? Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. Is that what he meant? We'll get the bombs on other people's homes? No. Not at all. Jesus plainly says in John 16, 33, that our prayers are not a form of control. They do not control God. They do not control nature. And they do not control what other people do. Jesus simply says, in this world, you will have troubles. Bad things are going to happen to you. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And that word, overcome the world, is the key here, which I want to talk about a little bit later in a few minutes. But he plainly says that even though God is good and even though we pray, bad things still will happen because that's the way the world is. A lot of things, Jesus said, happen that are not God's will. 
They're bad. And he is good. Still, there are many, many popular preachers, some of the best today in America, who say that everything is either God's direct will or his indirect will. So I know this is controversial. And that kind of teaching, that everything is God's will or his permissive will, is appealing because it makes us feel safe. But Jesus does not promise us safety in this world. Not in John 16. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, We know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, Satan. Who's in control of this world according to Jesus? Satan. This world is under his control. He is under the, on the throne in this world. God is on the throne in heaven, not yet on this world until the second coming of Jesus. In fact, the Lord's Prayer teaches us this. It teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Why? Because his kingdom has not yet come to this earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because it's not being done on this earth yet. But one day at the second coming, it will be. But that has not happened yet. Why does Jesus say to pray that? Because bad things do happen. And it's not God's will. Jesus in Luke 13 spoke against this idea that God is in control of everything and everything's his will or at least his permissive will. And he refers to this tower at the Pool of Siloam, which I spoke about last week, that falls on 18 people and they're killed. And people in those days believed God caused those things to happen because of sin and he was punishing it. And Jesus says no, flat out no. And he takes this and he says, that tower just fell. It was not God's will or his permissive will in any way. It just happened. These people were in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's a randomness in this world. Things just happen. When 9-11 happened, there were plenty of stories that I'm sure you read as, as well as me about people who were not in the building as they normally are in the Twin Towers because they went to lunch earlier, they went out for a coffee break, or their car didn't start, and so they couldn't get to work that day. And then the jets hit. That was not God's will or his permissive will. It was the act of terrorists who hated America. And that these people were not in the building was not because of some plan of God. It was no supernatural reason for it. Things just happen. And that makes us nervous, real nervous, because we want someone to be in control of everything that happens. And Jesus says it's just not true. But in a world where Satan is on the throne, where people have free will and choose to do bad things to other people, 
And God doesn't turn them into a robot. And when the government, for example, corrupt governments like in Haiti, received $2 billion in foreign aid and just a couple of million trickled down to their starving, malnourished children and adults. And Stalin, dictators like him killing millions. We must find courage and strength elsewhere than the demand that our prayers protect us from all the bad things that happen in this world. One of my favorite sports stories is actually quite biblical. You probably, you sports enthusiasts, probably know about Yogi Berra, the Hall of Fame Yankee catcher who was in a tie game with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. And the opposing team's last batter comes up to bat. And when he walks into the batter's box, he takes his bat and makes the sign of the cross on the plate and says a prayer. And Yogi takes his glove and wipes the cross out. And he says famously to him, let's just let God watch the game. (laughs) Let's just let God watch the game. Yogi was saying that this game is going to be determined not by the intervention of God in some way in answer to prayers of players and fans, but by baseball skills and maybe a bad hop that happens but scores a run or maybe a gust out of left field that stops a home run ball and keeps it in play and robs some batter of a home run. Not because pious fans prayed. Because things just happen in a baseball game. God does not intervene in baseball games, even if Christian fans say a sincere prayer for their team. Just imagine if Christians could pray and get God's intervention into baseball games. It would ruin the sport. It would be pure chaos depending on who was the more pious on the each side. Or you go to a 49er game. <laughs> Two minutes are left in the game against the Broncos and fans on both sides of the field who ordinarily never pray have their hands folded and their eyes closed deep in prayer, storming the throne in heaven for their team. And let's just say a pass is deflected into the hands of a 49ers defensive back and he runs for the game-winning touchdown. Should we tell the poor Broncos that this was the intervention of God according to our prayers? (laughs) I knew it! You rabid fans think God is a 49er fan. (laughs) But for the rest of us who are thinking straight. (laughs) There are all kinds of things that happen in this world that have no supernatural reason. They just happen. Secondly, sometimes prayers do not make a miracle because the prayer is wrong. Years ago in Denver, a member of my church was driving 
to an event in the evening when on the radio he heard about fire engines that were rushing to his, in, uh, to his neighborhood because there were some houses on fire. And he told me he spun the car around and rushed back to his neighborhood. And as he did, he prayed this, Lord, you are in control. Please don't let it be our house. Well, then whose house do we want it to be? Whose house would we prefer burned down rather than our own? Do you see the problem? Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India, made it a habit to end every prayer this way. Jesus, forgive this prayer if it be wrong. Forgive this prayer if it be wrong. That was not praying with a lack of faith. It was recognizing that often we don't see the big picture. And often our prayers really are selfish at the expense of other people. And sometimes our prayers are wrong. And that's why they don't make it happen. Precisely because God is good, not because he's bad. Third, sometimes people do not do uh, God does not do what our prayer asks because prayer does not stop the consequences of our choices. Prayer does not mean our choices now no longer matter because they can stop consequences. No. Years ago, I visited in the hospital a member of my church in Denver who was dying of emphysema. And he had been a heavy spoker all of his life, two-pack-a-day guy, and when I walked into his room, he looked up from his bed, mad as a drenched cat, and he demanded that I defend God. His question was this, if God is good, why did he allow this to happen to me? A monumental refusal to take responsibility for his choices. A couple of weeks ago, a woman was sent to jail. Maybe you read this article because she was talking on her cell phone as she drove and she hit and killed a cyclist. Do not tell me that God is in control of all that happens or that in some way this was God's permissive will for some unimaginable good reason. Leave God out of that. Plenty of people are blaming God because they say he allowed this or that to happen. And that kind of language drives me crazy. It ends up blaming God for sitting on his hands for choices that people made. Think about this. Do you think his family had prayed for his protection biking? Probably. But what is God supposed to do? rip the cell phone out of that woman's hand, shove her to the side and grab a hold of that steering wheel. That was what was needed. No, there are consequences for our choices. And we suffer the consequences of other people's choices and sometimes our own because God has created us with free will and he does not turn people into robots to force them to obey safety laws. That woman just proved 
why we made laws against driving while talking with your cell phone. And she just chose to be an exception. And she has the consequences and the dead writer does too. Leave God out of situations like that. And fourth, unanswered prayer sometimes is a strong mercy from God, a strong mercy. Corey Tinboom writes in one of her books about how uh, she and her sister were thrown into a concentration camp by the Nazis because they were hiding Jews. And the camp they were thrown into, the concentration camp, uh, put all the women at night in a huge uh, warehouse that had bunk beds that they all slept on. And the problem was the place was infested with fleas. And so it was hard to sleep because the fleas bit them all night long. And so they gathered and together and prayed that God would remove these fleas. But there was no intervention. They quoted Bible promises in their prayer prayers, but there was no miracle. The, stay, the fleas stayed and feasted on the women every night. And the women were angry. They accused God of doing nothing. And then after a few months, they realized that the guards never entered their warehouse where they slept. There were no beatings in the warehouse. There were no rapes by the guards inside the warehouse. And they realized the guards never entered the warehouse because they didn't want the fleas. The guards left the women alone because God did not answer their prayers the way they demanded. The fleas actually protected them against the guards. Surely some of you have a story of how an unanswered prayer turned out to be a strong mercy. That guy you wanted to marry, that woman, something that now you thank God he did not answer that prayer. Unanswered prayer is sometimes a disguised blessing. Sometimes we'll only find that out in heaven, but sometimes looking back we can see that here on earth. Fifth, not all prayers make a miracle because all creation has been negatively affected by human sin. Romans 8 verse 22 says, All creation groans and waits for the second coming of Jesus to release it from the effects of human sin. The earth groans under the effect of our behavior. The world that God originally created was the Garden of Eden. And there were no tornadoes or hurricanes, no dying, no disease in the Garden of Eden. But the earth is no longer the Garden of Eden because of human sin. That's in Genesis 3. And today we do live in a world like that, but it is not the world God created or that he will recreate at the second coming of Jesus. And that's why it's risky to be alive on this planet because it's not the Garden of Eden. From his birth, we prayed for John's protection, but then he became mentally ill. 
Should we blame God and shake our fist at him and demand to know why us? What did we do to deserve this? Why us? No, when you understand the earth groans, the question is not why us. It's why not us? Why not us living on this planet? And yet the really big question is, should we stop praying? Should we conclude that prayer does no good in this world? That's not the conclusion we came to. I want you to know we pray every night for God to intervene and do all sorts of miracles, including the protection of Jenny and Andrew and Tegan. Why do we still pray for miracles in this kind of world? Because of James chapter 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not pray. Not everything I pray for happens. I don't get a miracle with every prayer. And we must understand that every time you pray, you're asking for a miracle, aren't you? You're asking for the intervention of God in someone's life, in your life, in nature, in the economy, your boss's life. You're asking for intervention supernaturally. That's a miracle. And miracles are not a dime a dozen on this planet. Why then I, do I pray? Because the Bible tells me, even though not always do I get a miracle, there are miracles that will not happen if I don't pray. There are things that will not happen unless I pray. And I don't want to get to heaven one day and find out there were miracles God would have done, but I didn't believe in prayer anymore. There's another huge reason why I'm devoted to prayer, and it's this. It's because of what God said to Paul when his prayers didn't take the steak out of his stomach. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Notice, God does not give any explanation to Paul why his prayer was not answered. No explanation as to why. God does not explain why things happen and my prayers aren't answered. You know why? Because I just argue with him. It'd never be a good enough reason. He does not explain to Paul. He just gives him a promise. My grace is sufficient. Now, grace here does not mean forgiveness. Paul doesn't need forgiveness. He needs a miracle for the stake to be taken out of his life. What grace means is the free gifts of God, all of his resources, forgiveness, but beyond that, joy, indefatigable joy and strength and power and comfort. And that's what gave Paul the strength to move forward in his ministry. This is so important. Often God does not do a miracle. Instead, he infuses into us, if we're receptive, his resources and transforms us into a spiritually powerful person who overcomes, an overcomer. 
So many of our prayers are asking for miracles that make us an exception from bad things happening. Instead of asking for supernatural power to overcome. And that's the promise God gives to us. So Paul goes from city to city with this sharp stake sticking out of his stomach because his prayers were not given to him. But he continues to do amazing things. And most importantly, he says in this same book, and I love this, he says to the Corinthians, yes, we know suffering, but our joy is inextinguishable. And that's what I learned. And that's what I sought in my grief. I wanted to rise from the ashes with an inextinguishable joy. And that's what God gave to Susie and me. I learned there is no such thing as painless spiritual power. There's no such thing. Earlier in this letter, Paul said these bad things had taught him to rely more on Jesus instead of himself. He said he learned to boast in his weaknesses. What's he saying? I learned how to be dependent upon Jesus rather than trying to be independent. Most men hate that. We want to be the master of our fate. And it's an illusion. We are never the master of our fate. We do not have the resources to control this universe. We need to learn to be more dependent in how to do that upon the resources of Jesus to be overcomers. So Paul writes, I will boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me, set up his tent in me. That's the meaning of this Greek word, rest on me. This word is a very special word in the Bible and it's used in the Old Testament to describe God setting up his tabernacle tent in the wilderness as the people were escaping uh, the Egyptians. And it was in the tent that God was present with them, giving them strength in the midst of the wilderness. This same word is used in John 1 verse 14 to describe Jesus coming from heaven and dwelling among us. The literal translation is coming from heaven and tenting among us. That's the same word. Now Paul uses it. He says, my prayer is that God would come, Jesus would come and set up his tent inside of me. I want him to tent inside of me. Connect with him. The power of Jesus inside of me. That's what he prays for. There's a big difference. Listen to me. There's a big difference between believing in Jesus and connecting with Jesus' resources, a personal relationship. Big difference between believing in God and a personal relationship with him. That takes time. But that's where you get the resources. That's what I found in my grief with John. I found resources to rise from the ashes and live abundantly. What I've said will not satisfy everyone, I realize. Many will not be satisfied with anything less than that their prayers exempt them from the tribulation of a fallen world. That their prayers can control God and people and all things around them. Many will not be satisfied with anything less 
than control through their prayers and spirituality. And so they will always be vulnerable to the security preachers. But as for me, I pray for miracles every day. But in the case of my son, there was no miracle. But I did not give up on prayers for miracles. I learned from Paul how to become more dependent upon the resources of Jesus to overcome. My dad was a cotton farmer in the desert of Arizona. And 60 miles outside of Phoenix in virgin desert, cacti and sagebrush and all of that, he took bulldozers and graders and created cotton fields. But cotton need lots of water. So he drilled wells. The well driller told him, there's water at a thousand feet. I'll never forget, I was standing there like 10 years old. I'll never forget my dad saying, go to 1500 feet. I don't want to risk ever running out of water. Drill deep. That's overcoming. Drill deeper into Jesus Christ. That's what Susie and I did. We drilled deeper. We drilled into the word of God because the word of God was like water in a desert. We drilled deeper in prayer that spent a lot of time in silence just listening. And you know, people who talk a lot hate silence. But you need silence to hear him speak and to connect. All my life as a Christian, when I became a Christian, I've been in small groups, small group Bible studies. I'm in a small group Bible study now as your pastor with other ordinary Christians. Why? Because I need brothers in the faith. I need to sometimes borrow strength from them. I need to sometimes borrow laughter, borrow faith. They strengthen me. That's why I urge you to get into a small group Bible study. Because if you're trying to go through this life independently, you will fail. I guarantee it. You need, brothers, the fellowship around you. So we drill deep. Nancy Spielberg wrote something I have on my desk at home. Lord, I crawled across barrenness to you with my empty cup. If I had only known you better, I would have come running to you with a bucket. Drill deep and bring a bucket. You've been listening to Dr. Mike from Compass in Salinas and our newest location in Marina. The title of that message was, When You Pray and God Does Nothing. The scriptures teach in James chapter 4 that there are things God has wanted to do in our life, but didn't because we didn't pray for it. Over and over, the Bible says there are some things God only does if we bother to pray. And in our very busy, rapidly moving world, it's so easy for us to get out of the habit of prayer. When we do, we miss so many things God wants to do. Well, I hope you were encouraged. I also hope you know that we're open for live worship at all three of our locations. 
We're practicing all safety protocols, so it's safe to come to worship, especially with how intent we are about social distancing and taking temperatures as people enter. And our 1,500-seat worship center on South Main is so big, it's so easy to keep distance from others as you worship. I do hope you come because we need live worship, where we're singing praise songs to the Lord. It's as we sing praise songs that the Lord inhabits the praises of His people. And hearing Dr. Mike live is so different from listening on a podcast or watching on TV. So we hope you come this Sunday. Just look for the cross high above South Main at the edge of Blanco in 68, and that's our 1,500-seat worship center. Or in Marina, our newest location is just off Reservation Road by the Chevron Station. And we have a 6.30 p.m. worship service in our beautiful stained glass sanctuary on Padre Drive. It's a meditative candlelight service, and we'd love to see you at any of our venues. Thanks for listening today, and God bless you.